When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Talking Snooker with Phil Haig and Nick Metcalf. Once again, talking about the game we all love. Yeah, we're here. It's still bright and sunny outside. It doesn't really feel like snooker season yet, but it's weirdly close. Less than a couple of weeks ago before the season gets uh, underway. So we're excited for it, aren't we? Very much so, Phil. We are. It doesn't feel like very long. It's not very long, let's be clear, since Luca Purcell celebrated that most famous of world titles Less than a couple of months, but yes, the beautiful table game is back and we'll look ahead to the Championship League uh, a bit later. Uh, We must just say, first of all, Phil, a big thank you uh, for your response out there to our episode on the match-fixing verdicts following the sport's uh, biggest uh, match-fixing scandal. Probably the saddest episode we've ever recorded, uh, uh, Phil, but clearly a necessary one. And we have to say, you know, your kind words out there about our reflections on what has been a pretty dreadful affair have been very much appreciated, haven't they? Yeah, definitely. There's been some really good response to that. And uh, yeah, it was certainly um, our most serious episode. Definitely. We had to set the tone appropriately, but hopefully we did that. Um, yeah, pretty grim stuff, but it's got to be covered, isn't it? You know, it's a, an enormous story um, for the sport. Grim time for the sport, but, you know, hopefully we can move on now. Exactly. I know you've got some more reaction, which we'll talk about later as well. And that episode now with nearly 1,500 downloads, more than 2,500 listens on Apple devices. So a genuine thank you for tuning in and for engaging with us on a, on a tough episode to work on. And we're sure, we're sure for many of you to listen to. Well, this week, Phil, we're focusing a lot more on matters on the table, including a look back to the conclusion of Q School. And later, as we said, a look ahead to the first tournament of the new season, the Championship League. And we're doing so in the company of a very special guest, one of the eight players that made it through this year's Q School. It's someone who has been on a professional tour for the past four seasons. He was named Rookie of the Year following his debut campaign in 2019-20. But last season was much harder work and he fell out of the top 64, meaning he had to go through Q School to win his tour card back. But then comes that good news line. He did exactly that, beating Ryan Davies at event two to seal his place back on the main circuit for the next two years. His emotional reaction after that victory said it all about how much it meant to him. And we are delighted that he's with us on Talking Snooker. Louis Heathcote joins us on the podcast. Louis, it's great to see you. How are you? 
Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. I'm all good. <laughs> are, are, are you to some extent over Q School now? I'm, I'm sure it's stuck with you in some ways, but tell us about the time since. Oh, um, I think I went out on a bender for about five days, I think. <laughs> and then I've been uh, feeling the effects since that. I've been ill all week. I said, I said I'm going to get it out of the way last weekend, go and have my fun drinking, and then I'm going to spend this week I'm just going to play some golf, chill out before I start practicing next week. And I've been in bed all week. I've had to cancel all my golf matches and all sorts. So I'm a bit gutted about that. But hopefully I'll be fresh for Monday and I can start back practicing. Good stuff. Do you know when, you, do you know when you're back on the table in the Championship League yet? Or has that come out? No, no idea yet. Um, next week or in five weeks' time. So I've just got to be prepared for whichever one that is. And I think, I mean, you needed a bit of a blowout after Q School. You could tell by the interview you did with World Snooker how much it meant to you and how draining it was. I mean, it's such a unique experience, isn't it? Yeah, it's so weird. It's not like any other pro tournament. It's because if you lose in a pro tournament, you've got another tournament in a few weeks. And this, this, like, this 10 days was dependent for my next year or two years on tour. So, or not just on tour, but in, in my life. So, it's massive. It was. It was like everything. So I'm glad. I'm glad it's over. Yeah. And I mean, I guess you're trying not to think about this, but is it impossible to think about what is coming if you don't get through um, while you're there? Yeah. Yeah. People around me don't let me forget it. Put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> you know what you're going to do? You're going to get a job, and I'm like, well, I've still got a chance to get my top car back. Just let's just cross that bridge when it comes to it. You know what I mean? So. I, I did, like, I, I sort of, you know, spoke to the Chinese eight ball people and arranged this sort of thing with them to to go over there and play some Chinese eight ball. And mm-hmm. they agreed that if, if I didn't get on tour, I could go as much as I wanted. And if I did get on tour, I can go as and when I'm free. So I did have that as a bit of a backup. But, you know, snooker's been my life since I was 12, 13 years old. And that's what I want to do with my life, so... That was my main focus. You obviously didn't come through event one, so I guess that obviously focuses the mind, but it, in many ways it must increase the pressure. Just tell us about your feelings as you go into event two. You, you, you know it's a bit of a last-chance saloon, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I didn't even look at event two until I'd um, lost in event one. I was that had that sort of strong-minded that I was, I was going to do everything it took to get through event one I didn't even look at event two so when I lost I thought right I've got to check when I play who I've got and stuff like that um it was a weird one because I felt like I was playing really well and I felt really good in myself and I think um I played on the same table twice and the white was really really light and um you know I'm, I'm not one to sort of make excuses I'll always just blame myself for these mistakes but I can tell him myself when I'm timing the ball well and stuff like that. So for what the, I was I wasn't missing balls. I was losing the white a lot. I wasn't my scoring was nowhere near as heavy as as usual and my safeties. I was coming back down the table, leaving the white past the boot line. So so I sort of knew maybe I wasn't playing the best, but I knew that I wasn't playing that bad. I could tell him myself. So I sort of had to just regroup and tell myself that you know you you do feel good and you're playing well and. You are one of the best players here, and you've got to, you've got to use that to your advantage in the next event. Mm. I mean, 
the thing about Q School is, is everyone's, I mean, everyone's under pressure in every event to an extent, but everyone's under that same kind of intense pressure. So it sort of spreads, doesn't it, I imagine, the atmosphere there. You can almost feel it in the air. And it, it, it sounds to an outsider like me that's not been there that I use that word cloying a few times on here. It just seems like it, it's all enveloping type thing. Yeah, them, them last two days especially, you know, there's, you walk in there and it's quiet. There's not many people talking. The practice room's dull and quiet and stuff. So you can definitely tell it's a different atmosphere to any other tournament. And, it, it, I mean, this is a cliche really, but it is so hard. I mean, Alfie Burden looked like he played really well against you in that, in that game in the, in, the first, in the first event. And then you come back and... The first two games in the second, Paul Deville and Mitchell Mann, you know, that's a very tricky start. Um, you do get the odd player who, you know, you'd be very heavy favourite against, but there's a lot of ways you can trip up there, isn't there? Yeah, 100%. And, you know, after after losing, you start, you start, you know, these negative thoughts sort of creep in a bit and then you think, oh, I've got to play Paul, who's a good player, you know, he's English amateur champion, he's won a few um, matches in as a top up and you think crap this is like I've got to come here bring my A game and you know and then you get through that and you play Mitchell man it doesn't get any easier he's sort of a player that will be there for 20 hours if needs be so you know you've got to really stick it out to beat someone like him so yeah just really proud to um, you know uh, make the right decisions at the right times and score heavy when I needed to and pop them balls when it mattered. So it just shows that I can I can do it under the immense amount of pressure. Yeah, and I think those two breaks, so you, your final match against Ryan Davies, um, you know, that must have been a horrible feeling. Now, halfway through that match, it must have been hard not to panic a little bit, but then to get over the line with a century and then I think a 70-odd, um, that shows something, doesn't it? It shows you've got something. Yeah, it was so weird. Like, I, when I played Simon Bedford in the round before, I could honestly think that's one of the best I've played for a while. Like I scored so heavy. Every time he missed, he got punished. Um, I think I had four sort of four breaks to win, and I felt really good. And then I played Rye, and then I had a sort of half chance in the first round, but left myself a tricky pink in the middle, and I missed it. And it sort of shocked me, like to not play as well as I did in the last match. But you have to sort of. Yeah, you know it's a different match, but the match just didn't go the way I sort of planned in my head. You know, you just wanted a nice game and a comfortable match, and this game was so scrappy. I think his his billiard side really helped him. He put me in a his lines are really good and safeties and stuff. He put me in a lot of trouble, and it was just everything was going safe. It wasn't going my way, and I was just trying to say just stick in there. You've not come this far to lose in the last round of being an amateur, so. Yeah, to the first time I actually got in the balls was at three two. Like the first time I actually got in at the start of the frame and had a good look in was three two, and I made hundred eleven. Then he played. He sort of played a bad safety shot in the last and stuck me right behind the brown. The balls are absolutely like lovely. So I missed that four four times, I think, and ended up landing on it. And then he missed the red, and I ended up yeah making seventy four, which is probably one of the best breaks of my life. So yeah. <laughs> do you because you're still young at 25? Um, do you feel like you've got quite a lot of experience now? Really, is did you feel that making a difference in that situation? Yeah, I think so. I think knowing that I've done it before and 
knowing that I've beat top players under pressure and, um, you know, made good breaks when I needed to and against top top players. So I think, you know, that's always in the back of your mind saying, yeah, I've done this before. I've played matches to keep my talk hard and he's never done this before. So I said, like I said, went to the toilet and come back and said to myself, just try and use your last four years, do whatever it takes to come out and be the winner of this match. And, you know, thank God I did. Well, yeah, I mean, you've, you've half sort of started saying it already there. I just wonder what you were telling yourself at 3-2. Um, you, you know, just, it's such a backs against the wall moment there, then, isn't it? And and as, as we've already said, to then play such good snooker, that's a real credit to you. I mean, those last two frames weren't horrible, scrappy affairs. They could easily have been with those high stakes, but you make those breaks. And that just must give you just so much sort of confidence. Yeah, 100%, you know, like... Like I said, I went to the toilet and said, listen, you know, use everything you have. Every, every, you Just give every ball everything you have. And if you do lose, then you can just say, well done to Ryan. At least you've given it everything. But, you know, I just wanted a fair crack and a chance to try and get it to free all. And I got one chance and took it. And, you know, and then you go go again and say, right, just give me one more chance. And I got one more chance and took it. So, yeah, hopefully, like, now I've, I've got all this experience and stuff and, you know, I've had my four years, I fell off and I think it's a testament to, you know, they shows character to go back there and get through and play like that under pressure. So, yeah, hopefully I can really start kicking on now and making some making some ground. Yeah, we hope so, obviously. And, you know, we look, when you mentioned your emotional reaction, I mean, that, that video was, in a way, quite a tough watch. I might say it was quite a tough interview to do. You you really, you, you can see not just yourself, actually, quite a few players this year, and, and both years, but I think there's a particularly hard sort of set of matches and circumstances this year, and you really showed your emotion there. And it must have been quite a hard interview to do, but it just it just came over just how much you put into it and how much it meant. Yeah, it was, it was really tough, man, like, even before we tried to start the interview, we had to we had to stop a couple of times because I was just crying. You know, it was it's it's when you lose your talk hard, it's it's like so such a hard thing to take. Like you you practice so hard to be a professional, and um, you almost take it for granted when you're on tour. Like you know, I found myself sort of moaning about venues and setups, and you know, having to go in these leisure centres and no one there and I was moaning about stuff and I sort of brought negative vibes on myself throughout the season and I think that showed in my results because I was, you know, being negative about stuff and, and then as soon as you lose your tour card, you think, wow, man, like, this, you know, like you're so appreciative to actually be a professional snooker player. You take it for granted what, what you had and it, it literally does mean everything to, to be a professional. So I was really good at dropping off and, um, you know, I worked really hard throughout the summer to prepare for Q school, and it was it was a tough tough event this year. Only two events, so it was out of like two hundred two hundred fifty people, only eight people got on. So, and all that stress just built up, and I think it was a lot of it was just relief just to get through. And and you know how much it means to my family and like my mum, me and my mum have been through like tough times and tough results and stuff. So it just meant everything to not just me but everybody around me as well. Because it's tough for them as well, and I'm really interested by by you talking about the, your negative talk there and how you sort of switched that round. I guess some of it was more organic; you kind of had to. But how did you get yourself out of that mind? I mean, how did you get yourself into it in the first place, and how did you get yourself out of it? 
Um, I think it was, you know, my first year on tour, I absolutely loved it. You know, we was going to these home nations events. Yeah, fair enough. It was traveling a bit more. Um, so it might cost a bit more to lose in the first round. But even in these qualifiers, if you have, if I have to go to Wigan, it's, it's, not, it's not much difference than going to like Cardiff for the, for the World Open. But then if you win, you have to pay the extra and other expenses to go to the qualify the venue. So to, to go to these events and, you know, you're walking through kids in their swimsuits and families and you're still in your waistcoat and, and you're playing in a basketball court with two tables with no one in, it's tough. And it, you sort of, I just got myself in a mindset where I was like, is this the incentive to be a professional super player? You, you work all your life and you get to play in the back of a basketball court. So I thought I got wrapped up in it all. You know, you see stuff on Twitter and, um, you, you see people moaning, you think, yeah, that's right. Um, so you start moaning and then these negative vibes come off. And I think it really does show in my results that I wasn't in the best mental, wasn't in the best mindset going into the season or throughout the season. Um, and I just sort of tried, you know, I thought I was aware of that. I deleted Twitter for a bit and tried to get away from it. And, you know, just said to myself, just try and be as positive as you can. That's what the same mindset I went in when I qualified through Q School the first time. So I said, we've done it before, you know, just try and be as positive as you can. Just positive vibes everywhere you go. And yeah, hopefully that, hopefully, you know, that'll make a difference. Yes, the um, pandemic didn't help because you came on in 2019 and then, you know, by the next year, it's all behind closed doors. And that yeah. feeling of, you know, I've worked so hard to become a professional. You're getting to play in tournaments, but it wasn't what you expected, I see. No, you, you, yeah, you bang on. Like the first season, we was like going everywhere. I went to China and in uh, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, was straight to the venues for the home nations. And there was a lot, even at the qualifiers, there was an open crowd. So you go to Barnsley, they'd be at or Sheffield or Barnsley, and there'd be eight tables. And there'd be crowd in there, so you, you sort of still feel like you're at a proper event. So to go from that, and that was like I was living a dream, to then coming back and you know playing behind closed doors, and which I did get for the first bit, but then when it opened up, they sort of kept it the same. And you know, I sort of I really struggled with getting myself up for matches when you know you, you like you say you're in the back of a leisure centre with two tables and no one there. It was tough. Because that, that first season, 2019, you made a bit of a flying start. I mean, coming through, I was having a look at your results from there, the Q School 2019, so beat Cesar to come through. I mean, that's a top win. Now we know, we know how good he is. Um, and when, when your first two games, I think Ryan Day and on Sankem. So you must have been feeling great coming on tour there. Yeah, do you know, I, was, I did another podcast the other day and I said that was the best hands down the best month of my life like <laughs> I, I think it was a funny story because I lost to CGI in the first event of Q School 4-0 and then I was 3-0 down in the last round to him and needed a snooker at 3-0 needed a snooker at 3-1 wow and then made two good visits again to win 4-3 and then two weeks later I beat Ryan Day and then beat Nopon to qualify for China and then the day after I beat Nopon flew to Napa for a lad's holiday. So that like <laughs> that stint of time I was just like living the absolute dream. And I remember doing an interview for World Snooker and um I was in Napa and I was in the hotel reception. I was absolutely steaming. And I was on <laughs> I was on the phone trying to act sober as much as I could. Trying to 
questions and I just think it didn't have a care in the world. I was absolutely levered. <laughs> Amazing. I didn't know that. Or if I did know, I'd forgotten that you needed snookers in two of those frames. I mean, what yeah, a proper sliding doors moment that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Still look back and like have the video of when I got on tour and when I need uh, someone videoed it and when I you know, need to find a bit of inspiration. I, I sometimes watch it back and it, every time I watch it, I get goosebumps and it's still mad that that, that sort of happened to get on tour. It's like, you don't really see that very often. So, wow. but I do look, if I didn't get on tour, like if I didn't do that, then where would I be now? Like, what, do you reckon I'd be a pro or do I, do? would I have just be working? It's just crazy that you just don't know what would have happened if I didn't do that. So, well, yeah, well, I, 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 I was looking at those results. That so that Ryan Day win was in the Riga Masters, and then I yeah. thought, well, how come there was a walkover? And it was that. So you didn't play in the next one because you were on that plane that got cancelled or something. That was right, is it? Yeah, yeah. The first time I ever travelled away for a pro snooker tournament was sat on the plane ready to fly and never took off. I felt like crap. I was gutted. <laughs> Which one was that then? Remind me. That was the Riga Masters. Oh, right, yeah. Oh, goodness, yeah. So, I was so, yeah. The, and Neil Robertson was on there. I thought, yeah. if Neil Robertson's on it, we're definitely going to make it. Like, he doesn't, he won't, uh, he's, he's like number one in the world. He, he, we're definitely going to be all right. And then, you know, time went on. <laughs> you must be it's, joking. He's the, biggest, he's the biggest Jonah out there. He can't even get to events in the UK, let alone. <laughs> I know, yeah. <laughs> well, you, you certainly, you certainly, <laughs> Already filled in nicely the sort of ups and downs of the, of the sort of snooker life, and it's not always. It's, we say this time and time again on Fear Phil. Obviously, we, we, you know we're the other side of the curtain from the media, but it's not all glamour for you guys, is it, Louis? No, it's far from it. You know, you know, <laughs> I brought one of my friends to qualify, is right, and um, we was playing at, uh, up near Birmingham somewhere. I can't remember where. It is, but anyway, it was. To get through to the tournament, you had to walk through a, a golf shop, like a golf pro shop. And it was like, a, a, I think it's like a council golf course. And to get through to the tournament, you have to like walk, walk through it. And I was sat in this like tiny little thing and there was like two tables and no one there. And he goes, I cannot believe that this is the tournament you play. And he's like, he just thought that was playing in, in these big arenas all the time and I was like nope get used to it mate we've got Barnsley where there's a wet and wild there's a golf <laughs> shop and then we've got Wiggins Leisure Centre <laughs> got a basket, the basketball top cast so it's like I said this is this like it's not all glitz and glamour mate you, you, we're stuck in the trenches back here <laughs> is that Canuck that one you're talking about yeah Canuck yeah I've not been but I, I've not heard great things in general <laughs> nice uh, it's not great. Well, the Barnsley Metrodome, I said it before, I didn't once enter the press room without being asked if I wanted a towel. Now, yeah. you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm a nobody, obviously, but you're not a nobody. You're, you know, you're a professional snooker player, Louis. And, uh, I mean, we, we mock. There are some wonderful venues on the circuit, obviously. But yeah. for a lot of those qualifiers, a lot of those, quote, some quotes, smaller events, you know, it's... um. Yeah, it's rough and ready. You have to get used to the kind of uh, the other side of life, eh? Yeah, well, you feel like a hot donut, mate, walking through with your queue and waistcoat when there's 100 kids in their swimsuits and that queuing up for the slides. You feel like a flipping donut, but um, it is what it is, you know. Like I said, I was very negative towards it 
last year and I think that showed in my results. So I'm trying to go in this season with a new mindset and just, you know, I, I can't change it. So I'm going to try and be as positive as I can. Well, I was going to ask actually specifically at Q School, but in general, in these sort of environments, is it helpful to have someone with you? I know you've got Steve Feeney working with you now. It must be helpful to have someone, well, helping in a range of ways, but taking your mind off that kind of thing. Oh, it's def- I think not too many people, but obviously working with Steve has been great. But if I just have a friend there, I don't care where I am. You sort of just have enough of your mate and you're not bothered. You can find anything to do and anything to talk about. So you sort of sort of forget what's gone on but you know it's when you're traveling on your own and you sat there in, in these places it can be tough but you know everyone has to do it and you know who am I to sort of say we shouldn't be playing here and whatnot so it, it's just something I've got to deal with and try and you know um, find a way to make me feel like I'm playing in front of a crowd inside when I'm not so it's some, it's, it's, it's my problem it's it's not it's one of them things. Mm-hmm. And and working with Steve, how how did that come about, and how much did it change your sort of? I mean, it's all the sighting alignment and stuff. Was that a big change to your game? Um, yeah, it, half of it I found like easy, and then there's other times where I was going back to my old ways, and it came about originally because you know my results wasn't the best anyway, and thought I found myself missing so many balls at a certain time, the same certain time in a match. It was either like under a bit of pressure or a mid-range red or even an easy red. And it was a big part of a frame or a big part of a match. And I'd always sort of missed them. And I thought there's got to be a reason why. I can pop balls like off the lampshade, you know. But when it comes to that sort of certain time in a match, I was missing them. And obviously, you know, I'm really good friends with Ollie and stuff. And he was working with him and, he sort of suggested it, so I spoke to him and we had a few sessions and it was it was mainly for me to have something to fall on under pressure, something to rely on and have a pre-shot routine because you know now you have to like line up and stuff and mm. that gives me a pre-shot routine before I get onto the shot and before I was sort of just getting down on the shot and from any angle and playing them any sort of way. So this sort of gives me a pre-shot routine and something to rely on under pressure and also someone to be there for you as well, which is good. Someone knows what he's talking about. So I know my results haven't improved, but I also I think I've improved as a player, but my results have not come of it. So I'm just trusting the process and hopefully they'll come. Mm-hmm. Well, Phil, I mentioned a few moments there again of, of Q School. It reminds me that we maybe should dot the I's and cross the T's a little bit more from event two there, actually, and say that the players to make it through were... Alfie Burden, Stuart Carrington, our special guest today, Louis Heathcote, and Dean Young. Louis, as we've already said, beat Ryan Davies uh, 4-3 from 3-2 down. Those two breaks you mentioned from you, from you, Louis, of 111 and 74. Well, we should say Burden was 3-2 behind in his pivotal match against Julian Boyko, but came back to win uh, 4-3. And he, he said afterwards, there were so many emotions. I actually tried to pull out of Q school after the World Seniors. He lost to Jimmy White, if you remember, in the final of that. And Burden says, well, I thought I let my family down by not winning that event. I felt very down and didn't want to pick my queue up. Uh, but I had a few days practice, came here and rolled the dice. Q school is so tough. After I won, I went to the toilet and there was a kid bent over the sink, crying his eyes out because he had lost. It was Florian Nussler and I feel for him. 
we'll come maybe in a, in a moment to say quite why he was suffering so much. I almost wanted to swap places with him because I have had a long career while he's just a young kid starting out and wanting it so badly, trying to win a place on the tour. Everything I do is for my children, and I'm just delighted to win today. I mean, they're sad things to see, Louis. Have you seen anything quite like that and scenes of players being quite that distraught at, at that event? No. Um, you know, I've I seen Florian sat at the table. I went up to him, just put my arm around him and said, just keep playing. You, you're such a good player and, you know, just stick at it. Um, it's sad to see because it really does mean so much to everyone, you know. The, like, you know, like I said, we're playing to get our jobs back, but they're playing to live their dream and be, then fulfil their dream of becoming a professional. And, you know, they're not going to have another chance now for a year or so. So it, it, it's tough for everyone. And even Alfie, like, you know, he's he's older, he's had a long career and he got emotional in his, in his interview. And it just shows how much it still means to people like that who have had a long career and they're still getting back on now. How, how much can you be aware of what's going on at Q School? Are you, are you just so sort of wrapped up in what you're doing? Can you see who's getting through on the other tables or do you not really know? Oh, you can see. I was... <laughs> I was free to down and I seen AB had just got on and um, they were just packing away and stuff. And I looked over and he, we sort of just caught eyes and he started like giving a fist bump to me and that. And I was thinking, yeah, I'm happy for you, mate, but I'm free to down here. I'm bang under pressure. The yard here, mate. Like, you're trying to rub it in or something. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Me and AB get along really well, and he's he's such a great great man. Um, he's always been there for me, you know. I remember we was at, at the World when I played Ali Carter, and when I beat Ali Carter, um, he was playing his last match. I think he was going to drop off if he didn't beat um, Wembo. I think, um, and I was falling up at the interval, and he had his at the same time. And I think he was three one down. And he spent the whole fifteen minutes talking to me and trying to help me for my game rather than his own. And I just thought that's sort of just a testament to sort of the person he is. But he's he's fighting for his tour card to fall off for the first time and he's spending his last 15-minute interval trying to help me with my game. So, yeah, he's he's just a good good lad and I'm really happy to see him back on tour. Well, that does sound You get on with a lot of players on tour. I'm sure we'll go back to what we are talking about then, but... That's made me think. You you've got a lot of pals on the tour, haven't you? I, mean, I don't need to name them all, but um, a few friends that you really get on with in the snooker world. Yeah, I'm I'm quite a chilled guy, laid back, and you know, if we're going to spend a lot of time together, I hope I you know I want to get along with everyone, and you know, there's there's people that you get along more more than others, but I'd like to think that I could sit and have a conversation with pretty much anyone on the tour, and you know that. If, there, there, you work colleagues, sort of, and you, you know, you're playing against them on the table. But whilst you're away and you, you're going to be on your own, you know, you have to. If it's good, it's good to just have conversations and be chilled and get along. So, you know, I try to get along with everyone in life anyway. So, yeah, I'd like to think I'm pretty approachable and can sit there and chat to anyone. Yeah, I've heard Ali Carter actually mention him there. He's spoken very highly of you before, and that must have been such a huge win. That was in the World Championship qualifiers. Um, I remember that being a very big occasion at the time. Yeah, yeah, it was. I think that was like my first sort of... I'd sort of won a lot of matches that season, but there were first round, second round people who 
Yeah, look, like Ryan Day and Knockout, they were fantastic results. But, you know, sort of mid-ranked players, I was sort of just had no fear and I was beating them. And then I'd get to the second or third round and lose to a bigger name. And it comes to that. And that was my sort of, that was where I sort of, you know, had my first sort of really big win against someone. So, yeah, I think uh, Twitter and everything was going off after that. So, <laughs> it was good. Yeah, it was good. It was something I remember, remember forever because I was so, I really wanted to win Rookie of the Year that year as well because obviously you only get one chance at it and stuff. So, it meant a lot to me to win that, win that trophy. Um, and that was probably the reason why I did it, beating Ali. So, yeah. Mm. Well, that's smashing. Yeah, we mentioned at the top that was quite a really big deal and a special award for you to pick up. Well, <laughs> it was a bit difficult for Carrington in a way at Q School because he had a long old wait for his final match. Roy McLeod and Robin Hull battled it out in, a, in an epic encounter. <laughs> I can see you laughing there, Phil. I mean, it was, five, it was four hours, 13 minutes for a best of seven. I mean, good heavens. I mean, no no call to give it. Go on, Phil. You're, you're laughing so much. I want to hear you interject. Well, no, I just remember, I mean, there was a chance that some of the final round games were going to get finished before that semi-final, as it were. Um, yeah, it was uh, It was an epic, wasn't it? I mean, you could have, if there was two players who were going to do that, you know, they would have been up there near the top of that list of likely candidates. But that is long, isn't it? That is very long. It really is. But then, well, in the end, Carrington... Uh... It brushed aside that way, he, he he beat McLeod 4-0 and then said, I was expecting to be there all night. I thought it would be a tough match. I was solid. My safety was good, although 4-0 was a bit flattering. The last 18 months have been really difficult for me. It's been mental torture. I've been struggling to pull the cue back. I wasn't expecting a great deal this week, but I've hung in there and fought my way through without hitting the ball well. I have two years now to work on that and find the right person who can help me technically as well as mentally. I'm just wondering, Louis, have you ever had that? I'm sure you had that scenario, but one that really comes to mind where you've had a, a long wait for a match before and how do you kind of keep your focus? The worst one was when we was in COVID. I was actually playing CGI again and we was meant to play at uh, two o'clock, but the um, results didn't come back for the COVID test. I think I actually went on at like, Quarter past twelve, so we was sat there like waiting around all day, waiting for the results. Um, I think it's something that you sort of, for me, I was used to anyway. You know, you go to the amateur tours and you play your group matches, and there's always one group that's behind. So you're waiting three, four hours to play your last sixteen and stuff. So it's something. It's nothing that I'd not done before. Um, that was a bit extreme though, but um, it's yeah. Like you say, you couldn't have picked the two two people to have a match like that, could you? Before uh, for that, um, and like we, were, I was saying, you know, we, we, I was quite jealous of Stu having to come through. Like he sort of had it pretty easy for him. He said it weren't pretty, but it seemed pretty <laughs> well enough. Um, that's what you want in the last round. So yeah, fair play to him. You know, I hope I hope he does sort of get his action sorted. He's He's a nice bloke and his his Q actions like one of the silkiest on tour. He used to time the ball so so nice. So um I'm not sure what's happened, but I really hope he can get back to um his best. Yeah, he's one of those players that whenever I see him, I think he should be doing better. Um because he, he looks great, but he doesn't really get loads of results. But yeah, I didn't realise he'd been struggling with sort of a version of the yips, which uh I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like that, but it must be so horrible. It sounds awful for professionals. No, I've not. I've not luckily enough touched wood. Um, 
but I don't really think about much of my shot, so I don't think. No, ho- hopefully, like I don't think something like that could really get me. You know, I just feel like I just get down and play the shot. So I don't know if I sort of. I don't know. I think it's easy to say, but I don't know if I like believe in something like that because obviously it's I've never had it anyway. But I could tell that he was struggling with something. His cue action, his, his cue came back really quick and. I think he was just trying to you know, just get it back and go forward. So you can tell that he's struggling. But, you know, he was still knocking in tons. And I was watching yeah. him and he was knocking in tons and knocking in long balls. So he's doing something right. So hopefully he can work on it through the summer and come back and, you know, find a way to time it nice. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to ask, I mean, you've just come through Q's school the second time you've done it. Um, but there's been seemingly as much as ever talk about whether the setup at Q school is the right thing to do. Um, could there be changes to it? Are there different systems? Um, obviously, you're fine with it um, doing very well there. But do you think it is the right way of sort of getting the best amateur players onto the tour? Um, no, probably not, but I don't know what the answer is. So, mm. it's sort of like, I was thinking about this last night. I thought maybe if they did, they could do three events. Um one event just for the pros that have come off before people go on. One event for a mixture of amateurs and pros that have come off. And then one event just for amateurs. And I think that way you'd probably get four fresh new pieces. Uh, maybe a mixture in event. And it, then it gives a chance for um, first few pros to battle it out for four spots. I don't really know if that's a good idea or not. I don't know what the answer is, but two events to determine a year is just so tough. Uh, it's, I'm obviously lucky I got on and stuff like that, but you know you have to feel for like so many top players that are not going to be a pro, but just because of how tough it is to sort of get back on. And some some people, someone has to get on, and then and there's going to be loads of people that doesn't. It's just one of them things. That's the way it works. Mm. Yeah, I think I think that's the sort of vibe I've I felt in all the discussions. I've heard a lot of people sort of complaining, but no one's got like a concrete idea of like what what the better system is. I think people do like, um, you know, the Q tour is improving. I think, and maybe more places off that might be another another thing to look down. But you know, it's it's hard. There's not there's no answer that everyone's going to be happy with, is there? And I think, like we were saying about the Q tour, like it's tough for amateurs to fund traveling around Europe for two grand. That's to, to the winner, mm-hmm. so you probably win it to make any money, and then only one person gets the tour spot out of. So you've got to travel around Europe all year for the for the winner to get a tour. I know they have the playoffs as well, but that's mm-hmm. you could think for sort of what I'm saying is to to actually get your tour card back. You've got to travel six, seven times around Europe to potentially get for one space. I think that's that's brutal as well. Yeah, yeah, it is. It really is. Very much so. Carry on, Louis, sorry. Just saying you need someone who's going to chuck a load of money into you to give you the chance to do that. But snooker's a, snooker's a weird game for someone to try and get sponsorships, especially at the amateur level. You need someone mm-hmm. who's nice enough just to have a bit of dough and wants to help someone out. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, 
it strikes me that, you know, maybe across all sport, but focusing on this sport that we talk about, obviously loads on here, Phil, there's a lot there's a lot of issues that we sometimes think, oh, this could be better, but it, it's finding those alternatives, isn't it? That's kind of all, often the stumbling block, and maybe this is another one as well. It certainly cleans Q School. You have to say that it's brutal, but it, it, there's a sort of cleanness to it, definitely. Well, we should just say about Dean Young, he beat the aforementioned Nuzla 4-3, and Nuzla was 3-1 up, actually, before Young came back for a 4-3 win. And then this continuing theme of how brutal it is, really, and how tough it is. Young says, I could hardly stand up towards the end. I don't have a clue how I won. He missed a pink at 3-2. He should have closed it out. I had no plan B. So to get through Q school was all or nothing for me. The pressure here is immense. I have never felt anything like that in my life. My first two years on tour was an apprenticeship and I'm hoping to do better next time. That's what you, I mean, I know you've been on four years now, Lou, but that's kind of what you hear from players that are early in their tour life. I like that use of the word apprenticeship there. You're learning your sort of trade, not your trade, you've already learned that, but you're learning what it's like in the sort of hard school of life on tour. And unless you're, you know, a superhuman player like a Hendry or going back or whatever, you need that time, don't you? Yeah, 100%. I said the exact same after two years and I fell off, so hopefully it doesn't follow my... (laughs) My suit. Um, but yeah, it literally is like, you know, when I first turned pro, I was just so grateful to be a professional. And the first season, I was just happy to be there and, and whatever and just use the experience. And then I did well and it got to the second year. You don't want to, oh, I want to drop off now. This is, I love doing this. So I think but it's all part of life. You know, you see like Kyron, he's dropped off a few times and Neil Robertson dropped off and it, it just it, things like this just make you stronger, and you know, I think. Um, and I think now that I, it's easy to say this now, but now I've got back on, I'm sort of glad that I dropped off and I had this heartache and this these tough times. I think, like I said, it makes you stronger, and uh, and I've practiced a lot through summer. Normally, I wouldn't have, normally I would have had a break and probably would have only started playing now. So, you know, I feel like I'm going to be sharp and and. Um, Save for Dean Young, he's a he's a good lad and a good player. So, you know, you, you so he's got that two years behind him, like I said, and um, he's going to know what to expect now going into. Well, we feel like we, if you're breaking up a little bit, Louis, which I think you are from time to time, then it's a few gremlins in the system. So, apologies for that. But we should say, not to worry, you are listening here to Talking Snooker with Phil Haig and Nick Metcalf and our special guest. Uh, Louis Heathcote and well Louis maybe go back to your sort of time on tour so far interested to read an interview you did with Phil actually when he was talking at the time about how tough it was financially and how you may, had to make ends meet in other ways doing other little jobs on the side we hear that a lot from players that just adds a, a, an extra layer of stress doesn't it yeah and um you know, you, you listen. You don't, you, there's never a time that you think about um, the money whilst you're playing, um, but it is. It's in the back of your mind. Like even you know, before the tournament, you're thinking about the free grand or or whatever. And or if you if you lose, like I know obviously now we've got the twenty grand guarantee, but in previous times, if you if you travelled and lost, you'd actually be losing money, and that's not that's not a job, is it? You literally just. You go to a tournament and you'd be 300, 400 pounds down. You could potentially lose four or three on the black and you come out down. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't class that as a job. And we're, we're in the top 128 in the world out of 
eight, seven, eight billion people. And that's like, that's an elite, elite uh, category to be in. And I feel like you should, people think, you know, you're millionaires, but you're not half of us, a, a skin. And yeah, I mean, that, you mentioned before about, you know, loving the professional game when you got on there. Um, and, you know, the, the logistics of it must test the love of the game, I guess, at times. Yeah, yeah, there's been times where like, I've come home and, you know, I've said, you know, I've been upset or whatever, my mum's been upset and we say, is it, re- is it, is it really worth, like, this, this much hurt? Because you, you dedicate your life to practising and then you travel four hours up the road, lose four free and you've got to travel back and you're down 300 quid and you just, you come home and you think, is it really worth all this, like, aggro and stuff? But then... You think you do win, and that feeling outweighs every loss that you have. And playing in front of the in the venues is the, is the best feeling in the world. So, but yeah, there is times where you think it would be easier just to get a job, and you'd probably get I don't know minimum two grand a month that keeps you going or whatever. And you know, at least you know you're guaranteed that at the end of every month. But those those highs keep you coming back, and, and I suppose Q School seems like it's more of a relief, but. That must have been a great high in a way, though, as well. Oh, yeah, it was, yeah. Like like you say, like, Q-School's a relief, but it means more than, like, probably anything because, you, like you say, it is all or nothing and you're playing for for the job. Now now you've got to go and do, do the business, but at least I've given myself a chance. So, yeah, I think there's no feeling like Q-School, getting through Q-School. I'd, I'd say the best day of my life was my first, when I turned pro for the first time and then, like you, you could see how much it meant to me qualifying it again. I've never been like that after a tournament on the pro circuit. Mm-hmm. No, it strikes me you talk about your family quite a lot. I mean, you, you seem like you have some immensely close relationships with with them, your family members, and it seems like they've been a great support to you over the years. Oh, big time! You know, without them, I wouldn't have a chance to even you know, be here. Like, my dad was working 6am till 6 at night, travelling around, and then and then he'd take me to Leeds on a Friday night for tournament and stuff. So, you know, without him doing that every single week, I I wouldn't be here now. And, you know, it's just, just me and my mum living here, and she sees me, like, obviously, me and my mum are, like, really close, and she sees all the down times and the hard days, and she she loses with me, so it really affects her as much as me. And she, I think she obviously, I think she wants me to win more than I do. She she's that like passionate <laughs> for me and proud of me and stuff. And you know, she just wants me to be happy. And you know, when she sees me upset because it's tough, you know, it's not nice for her. So you have to, you know, uh, because there's so many more lows than highs. So you have to really appreciate the highs when you get them. And it sounds like in many ways the emotion was as much for them as yourself when you had that sort of Q school moment and I think we can all reflect on that in our own lives sometimes you just realise how much people mean to you what they've done and it does bring those emotions right to the surface isn't it yeah yeah and it just shows that how much like they care for you as well like all my friends were sort of crying watching my interview and stuff and it just shows you like the people that you have around you and how much they care about you as well. These are like my mates watching my interview and they're tearing up and stuff. And, you know, like my girlfriend, we know we're trying to save her a house and stuff. And she's like, 
should we do this? Should we do that? And I'm thinking, I don't know if I'm going to have a job in two weeks. And you want to, you want to book an holiday and stuff. I'm like, you know, because she's got a job and she wants to do stuff. And she's like, oh, should we go here? Or, you know, we're trying to save for a house. And I'm like, my head's just like, I don't know what if I'm going to be what, stacking shelves in Tesco or playing snooker or anything like that. So, you know, it, it's tough for, it is tough for everyone, especially like, like her, you know, she, you know, we are trying to, you know, we want to make, uh, get a house to start a family, but snooker's a weird sort of weird job to do that because you don't know if you're going to get paid three months or you're going to get paid 50 grand in one week. So, Yeah, absolutely. Bill, we've got some correspondence in, haven't we? We're, we're, we're pleased to say maybe we'll turn to that now. You, you get a compliment of the first one, I'm, which I'm sort of half pleased about when that happens. You know that. <laughs> Yeah, that was very kind of. Um, yeah, this is from Mikey on Twitter. Uh, love the podcast and would like to like to let you know what a superb job you're doing. Thanks very much, Mikey. I was on occasion. I was an occasional listener until I met Phil a couple of seasons ago at Judgment Day. He was a delight to me. There's the there's the compliment. Lovely. Uh, since then, I haven't missed a second of what you two have recorded. Love it. I'd like to congratulate Louis on his graduation from Q School. Everyone agrees how tough it is, even for seasoned pros like himself. Now it's about surviving and then climbing up those rankings. Louis strikes me as a hard worker, but I'm wondering if there's anything he'd do differently this time around in terms of snooker life behind the scenes. Yeah, good question. Um, 100%, you know. Uh, I'm a work hard, hard worker, um, but I do let myself down as well, you know. I'm not the healthiest. Um, I go out drinking a bit too you know, I, I do enjoy going out with a lot. That sort of hard work I do putting in the week. Sometimes I do ruin on the weekend and stuff. So, um, you know, going into this season, I, I plan to be a lot healthier and get back into the gym and um, try and have a clear mind and, and try and do a lot more things that are going to benefit me on the weekend rather than going out on the lash watching the football and stuff. I think it's good now and again, you need a break. But, you know, every Saturday is not the best. <laughs> Yeah, of course. Well, let's move on then to Gary, who asks, uh, you said, hello, Louis, who were your snooker heroes growing up? Uh, Ronnie, for me, Ronnie was, Ronnie was my hero growing up. Um, He, he was the one that sort of made me get into snooker. I'd I'd watch his videos, like, for hours and I'd just type Ronnie Sullivan and watch his best breaks and pots and, and then I'd go and try and, um, reciprocate that in in practice the next day so yeah I would I, would, I was starstruck by Ronnie growing up and I remember when he said that something very nice about you he sort of tipped you to to go a long way and that that must have meant a huge amount coming from him then yeah it was crazy man I was I remember waking up in the morning and someone tagged me in a tweet and someone said oh this is nice of Ronnie or something and I thought what the freak's this guy on about <laughs> and it took me to the Took me to the um, thing what he said, and I was just like smiling like a Cheshire cat all day. <laughs> I was like being recording it, sending it to all my mates in group chats, and my mom, <laughs> you know, I was buzzing. I was absolutely buzzing. Um, but I was like, I played it cool, like when people asked me in interviews and that. But it, deep down, I was so gassed. Uh, this is next one from M18 Snooker on Twitter. Is there any added pressure being from a snooker hotbed like Leicester? Um, 
it's a weird one that because I don't know if it's added pressure, but I can't walk in the club without talking about Spooker twenty times. Mm. Like I'll go in there for a drink or just to chill, and I'll have the same same. I have a group of people come up to me asking me the same question. So I'd sort of start at the door, make myself way down to the bar, and I'd go for about 20 people. So it's a weird one. Like, they're always asking me how I'm getting on and, and stuff. So I don't, maybe maybe without knowing there is, but I don't really think about it at the time. But then I go in the club and I, I can't sort of avoid it. So Yeah, that's interesting, actually. Yeah, there's no, there's, um, it might not be the... You obviously got a lot of practice partners around there and good conditions and stuff, but yeah, that's quite an intense working environment, then, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, like for me, obviously, when I practice, the club's not open till four, so I go in and get my practice done. But I do spend a lot of time in the club and that. So, and especially when tournaments are in Leicester, like even go through Q school and that, my club's so busy. So I'd go in and chill for a bit before heading over, and you know, 15, 20 people come up to you and talk about your game. Partly my fault for going in before a match, but they're only they're only trying to be nice and stuff. But then you then you also you know that they're all all asking you about it, and it does bring that sort of edge on going mm-hmm. over to the game. So yeah, it's a weird one. But they're, like you say, they're only they're only trying to um, show support and stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm. You, you talked about Ronnie being a hero. I wonder what your sort of feelings are towards Mark Selby and how much of a great champion he's been, and you know what any you know. Uh, just a, a great Leicester, Leicester man and sports person. Yeah, he's um, he's such a great ambassador for the game. Um, he's a true professional, um, and I think if anyone, anyone growing up should try and have his attitude to the game. Um, when I was younger, I used to say like, "Oh, you know, he's slow and boring and stuff." And when I was a kid, and I was, because everyone around Leicester used to love Mark and I was a Ronnie fan. So I'm like, oh, Ronnie's better in here, blah, blah, blah. And it weren't till I got a little bit older that I actually learned to appreciate how good he actually is. And, do you know, I could actually sit there and watch him play it all day. He's he's so good at what he does and the way he thinks and he scores so heavy and stuff. So he's actually really good to watch and he's actually one of the nicest blokes you'll meet as well. He was the first person to message me when I got on tour again and um, played golf with him a few times and stuff uh, last year. And yeah, yeah, he's such a, he's a, he's a great, great man. So yeah, he, he's uh, and he's, he's good to have someone like that. He's probably done. He's probably the best sports person from Leicester, I'd, I'd say. Um, and that he will go down in history for being one of the greatest ever. I think. I wonder what started making you appreciate him more. Was it just you, yourself learning more about snooker? Maybe you changing a bit as you were growing up? I'm interested by that. Yeah, I think it was me. Like, me growing as a person and growing as a player. Because, um, you, you know, you, you, you are young and you say, you just say stuff stupidly and or whatever without even thinking. Um, so when I actually learned learning the game a bit more and I got a bit better. I actually, when I, probably like when I was 15 or so, started to think, oh, this guy is actually like amazing at the game and his true grit and mentality is something that I need to strive for and learn from. So it was it was more when I sort of grew as a person and a player that I learned to appreciate how good he actually is and 
you know, I would actually I'd go out my way to watch him play now and I could watch him play all day. Mm, well, that's, that's great to hear. And let's move on then to John on Twitter, who asks, what made you play that shot? And I think you probably know which shot we, we mean, he means, when snookered on the yellow against Ryan Day. <laughs> and how often do you watch it now? I watch it every time it comes up. <laughs> so, not often, but when it does, I'll always milk it. Um, <laughs> to be honest, it was one of them where it was the only shot I had. Like I was so tight in behind the black. There's nothing I could have done. So it's just something that, you know, it was... I played to hit it and played to get near it. And I, th- I was more thinking if I miss it, I hope he just don't clear up because I knew the brown was safe. So I'm, I was hope, sort of half open. I left it on and he tried to clear up. But because there was no one in there, you don't realise how sort of crazy it is. I was just sort of apologised to him and he was absolutely fuming. <laughs> 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 I could just see his face. He was acid, but I was like, I flipping up. Um, but because there's no one in there, you don't realise the reaction. And I sort of ended up losing the match anyway. So, um, come off. And then Twitter was just mental. It was all over Sky Sports. It was in Telegraph Times. Um, lad. <coughs> it was that on telly and Gary Lineker retweeted it. And it was mental. <laughs> Absolutely mental. Did you say acid there? Yeah. Bill, <laughs> that's, that's a keeper. When I'm when I <laughs> someone in the right old mood, that, that's an acid, acid face. I like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that properly went. That was a proper viral moment. I was up there with sort of that shot Judd played in, in the German Masters. It went just one yeah. of those just goes absolutely everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bit different to Judd. Mine was a fluke and he just cued it a dream. But he, um, yeah, I'll take it nevertheless. <laughs> Um, so yeah, now looking ahead to the future, um, excited for to be back on. Obviously, uh, you said you're feeling sharp ahead of the new season. Um, have you set yourself any goals or anything, or is it one of those where you just want to enjoy it more? Like you said, um, a bit of both. Like I do want to enjoy it, and you know I've learned from my mistakes being negative, like I said before. And this season, I'm going to try going with a new mindset and be a bit more positive. You know. Not get not get the ump over things that I can't control. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to set some goals. I'd love to get to a semi final or something like that. You know, I, I, that's something I really need to improve on. Is you know, I win enough first round matches, but I never kick on from there. I'm always losing the last last thirty two, last sixty four. I've only ever been to one last sixteen in four years, so that's not good enough. Um, so, yeah, I'd love to go a bit deeper in tournaments. I'd love to get to a quarters in the semi-final. Um, and, yeah, I'm really going to try and work hard off the table, more importantly. You know, I work really hard on the table, but I've let myself down off the table. So, I'm going to make some try and make some big changes going into the new season and hopefully um, hopefully, really just enjoy it, like you say, and, and um, get back to playing some good snooker, yeah. And maybe get to the Crucible one day? That would be a dream, yeah. I went, I went up and um, went during the world and sat sat outside the crucible with Aaron Hill, um, and it just like put, gives you shivers just thinking about it. And it's one, it's one of the only tournaments I'll make sure I try and sit and watch it like every shot. Just I love, I love watching the players come out, and 
I could just sit there and it just my hair stand up on the back of my neck and I would love nothing more than to walk out in that uh that stage one hopefully this year, maybe no next year, if not the year after. Have you been in to watch a game there before? I went to watch Ronnie versus um Matthew Stevens in I think it was two thousand twelve, the semi final. No way. Yeah, that was that was a big thing for me as well when I went there. I was just so like it was a weird feeling, like I was in awe of Ronnie. Like he just had this weird presence about him, and and when I left there, I thought, yeah, this is this is my dream. This is what I'm gonna do forever. Um, yeah, I've been a few times. I went to a few first rounds, and I actually went to the last the last time Alex Higgins ever played. You know, when he played at the Legends thing. Oh wow. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I've been a few times, but I've never been in the back bit or anything like that. So I'm waiting for that to when I play. Yeah. Well, that 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 bit's rubbish. So don't worry. About it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only joking. I'm only joking. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> well, Louis, what can we say apart from thank you so much? You've been an absolutely brilliant guest. Uh, today you've been so funny so illuminating we wish you so well for the new season and of course your future and will you come back and see us one day even if you're world champion thank you first of all thanks for having me it's been a pleasure um um, i'll be on here anytime and of course um i'll come on here especially especially when i'm world champion (laughs) Uh, anytime you ever ever want anything any interviews any 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 time on the podcast i'll always always have time for you both very kind of you, Louis, and uh, always a pleasure to to speak to. I can say that from personal experience. Always a always a treat to interview. So yeah, uh, I'll echo what Nick said. Best of luck for the season. We all want to see you do well. Thank you, and you both keep up the good work. Eh? Nice one, mate. Appreciate it. <laughs> Cheerio, sir. All the best to you. That's a Louis there. What what a terrific guest. Fabulous. Our, our first guest of this uh, summer season, Phil, and we we couldn't have have wished for. Uh, much of a better one there. He was absolutely smashing value, wasn't he? So funny about that. I'll enjoy it. Sounds a bit sort of um, listening to your own pod, but I actually really enjoy listening back there to some of his sort of jokes about tournament venues and you know, being in his waistcoat and walking through sort of swimming areas. <laughs> Great stuff, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like I mentioned, you sort of hear, hear his name mentioned by a lot of other pros of just sort of people they like on the tour. And uh, yeah, when you get to speak to him, you can see why. Just, just a lovely, genuine guy. So yeah, um, Everyone wants to see him do well, and he's legitimately a very, very good player. So um, it's certainly not out of the question that he'll pull off those things that he was talking about, getting to quarters, getting to semis. He's definitely good enough. So, And it would be a very popular result if it, if it did come. It certainly would. Now, Phil, we should say this is a, a talking snooker here, and we'll move on to other matters before we depart. The Championship League, Phil, will kick off the 23-24 season. And as we know, there are now more episodes of the Championship League in an average year than there are EastEnders. Absolutely. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> you, you gave me a nice little... Th- I thought you might give one of those sort of, oh, Mark, what's he doing again? Face. <laughs> it's not a good gag. It really isn't. But, um, but there we go. Bill, it's a low-key start, as we know. It's a, it's a pretty mere- meandering kind of tournament, isn't it, the Championship League? I was looking, it's starting next Monday in Leicester and uh, lasting until July uh, 21st. I was having a look at some of the sort of events that we'll enjoy sort of uh, during it. So we're going to have basically the majority of the Ashes series, 
which is just getting underway here in the UK. The whole of the tennis grass court season, including Wimbledon. Heaven knows how many Grand Prix, one of them being Silverstone. And then we'll finally see a winner crowned during the Open Championship in the, the late part of July. What I'm saying is it's a, it's a proper slow burner, isn't it? It is, yeah. And uh, there's not loads we can say about it yet because the draw hasn't happened. We know when it starts, but um, yeah, we don't know what the groups are or anything. So uh, I'm sure that'll be coming in the, in the very near future. Um, but yeah, no, it is, it's a low-key start, but it's an enjoyable one just to flick on every so often, have, have simmering away in the background. And actually, I've heard a few players say that it's actually quite a nice sort of low-pressure start to the season. You're not going in uh, after your summer break playing for big money or with a huge title on the line. Um, but we also know that it's a, it's a great title to win um, come, come the business end at the end of July. You know, we had Dave Gilbert on here after he'd won it. Um, and it meant an awful lot. So, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think I always use this line, it's no one's favourite tournament, um, which sounds mean, but it's true. It is literally no one's favourite tournament. Um, <laughs> but it's still it's still worth a watch. We should ask someone, say, you know, big statement there, is it someone's favourite tournament? Let us I, know. I'd be stunned. I'd be, I would love to know the reasoning <laughs> behind it, if it is anyone's favourite tournament. <laughs> <laughs> if it is yours. We'll need a lie detector test as well, because I'm sure one, a, a cheeky rascal or two might just tell us it is. Um, and uh, we'll, need, we'll need some evidence, really good evidence. Well, the winners of the ranking event version, Kyron Wilson, obviously a serial winner of big tournaments. Dave Gilbert, who you mentioned. And important to say, Dave's first is still only ranking event. It might always be his only ranking event, but he'll take that. It means forever and a day, he's not one of those players that didn't make it to win one. He did so. So... You know, it has that status, it should be said. And then, of course, last year, Luca Purcell, a proper old sandwich, that, wasn't it, Phil? It, it, it appeals to my mind, certainly, that he won the first event and the last, of course, that, that most famous of wins at the Crucible. But it, it, it's sort of much forgotten, really. He did actually record another tournament win last season at the Championship League. Yeah, big old gap between the two and a very contrasting events. But, yeah, um, yeah, it's sort of seen... I mean, this World Championship win was obviously out of the blue, but um, yeah, two. That's his. That was his second ranking title of the of the season. So, uh, yeah, amazing stuff. And uh, yeah, that seems an awful long time ago. When I remember seeing him hugging his dad, winning the Championship League. Um, you know, <laughs> a very different setting to celebrating the at the Crucible. But yeah, two ranking tournaments though. It'll go down on the list as just two ranking tournaments, even though they couldn't be more different. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, obviously, you know, I know many of you out there will will, will enjoy the fact that, that Snooker's back. I mean, I have to say, I was just thinking this the last couple of days, but the four seasons, I absolutely love autumn snooker. For me, that really kicks off the, the season proper. Love winter snooker. That's the sort of, in many ways, the soul of the game, those sort of dark, cold nights here in the UK, wrapped up at home and watching watching the game. And then, of course, spring uh, culminating in, in, that, in that wonderful tournament of the Crucible, the World Championship. Summer is one that I find a bit harder. It's a bit more low-key, but it's nice to know it's ticking around. We have a pretty big tournament coming, of course, in Germany in August, but it, it's sort of nice to know it's back. And well, it always sort of strikes me. I mean, well, we've had Louis on, of course. He's you know saying about how he's practised more than, more than usual, but you can always sort of tell pretty quickly which ones have been really nailing, nailing, nailing down the practice time, Phil, and which ones have maybe been... Yeah, shall I say, before we came on air, we were t- chatting to Louis and you asked him, 
Has he, done, has he done a Grealish? You've turned it into a verb already. We'll find out soon which players have been doing a Grealish this summer. <laughs> <laughs> well, Louis had a good reason to do a Grealish. He was celebrating something. I don't know how people were just Grealishing um, without anything specific to celebrate. Um, but yeah, now, uh, yeah, sometimes uh, some of those early matches in the Championship League are a little bit ropey. Um, I remember, yeah, last year, an awful lot of Chinese players were doing very well early on. Um, and they'd obviously been working hard away in the in the academies over the summer. Um, so, yeah, we'll see. Um, but, yeah, those early rounds are quite funny. But, yeah, as I say, when it gets to sort of the, the latter stage, that, that final two group stages, we get to that bit, um, it does get quite, um, well, important. There's a lot of money on the line and a trophy. So, yeah, um, the long build to July 21st begins on June 26th. <laughs> Indeed. Well, any other business, Phil? should say, you spoke to Ollie Lyons, haven't you? A piece you can see on the Metro website. He's talked of his sadness at being involved in a match at the Yambings. How fixed when Lyons won 5-4 to reach the quarterfinals of a ranking event for the first time at last year's Turkish Masters. One of the things that really comes through, Phil, from your piece is Ollie can't believe it in many ways, as Jan, at times, as we said as well on here, plays so well in that match. Yeah, um, yeah, I spoke to Ollie earlier in the week because it, it was two matches because there's that one. And yeah, Jan played brilliantly. I, sp- I mean, in a way, it's not surprising. He was just like very convincing at match fixing um, because Ollie's memory of that match was that neither of them missed a ball. Like, he had to play really, really well to beat him. Um, he said if his friend was there and he was, he said it was, you know, that's the match of the tournament sort of contender. So to then find out that it was fixed is just mind boggling, isn't it? Um, but I think he, the anger in that piece was more that um, he was also involved in a, in a match that proved to be fixed um, from 2014, uh, which he has no memory of that match, really. Uh, it obviously remains winning it, but that's about it. But I think he was just sort of, you know, that's an awful long time ago. And just to think that these guys have been on tour um, the whole time, um, thinking they got away with it. That's when he sort of said how angry he was about that stuff. So, yeah, no, if you've not read that, um, it's an interesting piece from Ollie's perspective of being dragged into that by being involved in two, two of the fixed matches. So uh, give, it a, give it a glance if you can. No, it really is a very good piece uh, from you, Phil, speaking to uh, Ollie Lyons in, in recent days. Well, Phil, we would like to uh, tell everyone now that we are part, aren't we, of the Sport Social Podcast Network. We were asked if you wanted to join up. And we're very happy uh, to do so. Uh, there are some marvellous podcasts on there. So we feel we're in uh, very good company. Uh, we're still feeling our way into this uh, new arrangement, I think it's fair to say. But it's very nice to see the podcast up in lights on the Sport Social Network. It does mean you'll now hear a few adverts on the podcast, which is hopefully not too much of an inconvenience. Uh, we're not going to get rich anytime soon, Phil. But I think for our standing and our credibility, it does feel like a real boost. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, they asked us a while ago, and it sort of we wanted to kick off the new season with this new arrangement. So yeah, good to be involved. Loads of good podcasts on there. So have a have a look what else they've got to offer. Uh, and yeah, a, 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 another step towards professionalism from us. Uh, well, we've got quite a lot of steps before that, if we're honest. <laughs> <laughs> a big leaps, really. Phil, we're both off on rather big trips, aren't we? Very different affairs. I'm heading to Bulgaria. The first time for ages, it feels like, well, just going somewhere. 
Uh, I haven't done enough of that lately. So people say, why are you going there, Nick? The answer, quite simply, is I'm just going. I'm really looking forward to it. And you, sir, are off to the world's biggest music festival. You're going to Glastonbury. You must be looking forward to it loads. Yeah, I can't wait. Going uh, Thursday morning, I think. Um, yeah, I've been a couple of times before. Um, it is a unique experience and uh, one that takes quite a few days to get over. Um, so yeah, we'll be I'll be recovering for a while the week after that. But yeah, no, it's going to be great, great lineup. I think the weather looks good, um, so plenty to look forward to. Good man, and yeah, you you mentioned there. And next episode, actually, we're building in a bit of Glastonbury hangover time for you, aren't we? Let's be let's, let's be clear here. So yeah. we're likely to be with you next Tuesday, which is June the twenty second seventh, and we'll be joined on that episode by one of Fleet Street's genuine big hitters, Jeremy Wilson from the Telegraph for a special Your Views episode. We'll be addressing all your recent correspondence. Still, we probably close the lines on that on about Wednesday, so a couple of days still to get your views in. So whatever's on your snooker mind, we'd love to hear from you. What are your thoughts about the new season? Which players can you see doing well in this campaign? Maybe you're looking forward to attending a tournament in the new season. Whatever your snooker views, let us know. Tweet us at Talking Snooker or email Talking Snooker at yahoo.com then just to say a week after that we'll be joined by brendan cooper the author of a new book deep pockets snooker and the meaning of life and i'm intending to read that actually when i go to bulgaria so looking forward to to that so two lovely voices coming up phil but should maybe by finish by reflecting again unless you've got anything else on your, on your notes there that we've had a smashing guest in newy heathcote we thoroughly enjoyed it and uh wishing well for the new season which is now about to start. It's back. The beautiful game is back. Yeah, it does feel funny, doesn't it? I think it's just the, the weather makes it feel funnier. It's so so sunny and hot outside. that It just feels odd. It might be one of those where they're playing in shorts again. I, was, I think it was this tournament last year they were allowed to play in shorts at some time because it was so boiling in there. But yeah. Um, yeah, no, looking forward to it, of course. And yeah, thanks, Louis, for being on. And yeah, I guess um, with Jeremy as well, if you've got any questions about his career, I'm sure he'd be happy to answer that. Uh, really great writer um, um, in newspapers and books. So, um, yeah, any questions about about Jeremy for Jeremy? Um, just give us a shout. Definitely, he's a he's a tr- tremendous journalist. So, yeah, d- do definitely get your your questions in for Jeremy. Talking snooker at yahoo dot com, or tweet us at talking snooker, or indeed you can tweet us on our own accounts. Let's go and watch some cricket, Phil. Good, good. <laughs> The Ashes, we're delighted to say, is underway. What a contest that will be here uh, in the UK. And uh, thanks for your company uh, this morning here in the UK. And uh, see you next time after Glastonbury. Do have a great time. Yeah, I'll be uh, I'll be doing a Grealish. Don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah, enjoy. I'm going to enjoy the cricket now. I hope I enjoy it anyway. I will struggle to enjoy it if England do badly. But yeah, plenty to look forward to there. Indeed. And uh, thank you indeed, everyone out there, for your most supportive words after our match fixing episode for listening to us in such big numbers and always generally for your company here on Talking Snooker and we thoroughly enjoyed recording this new episode we hope you enjoy listening as much as we have indeed uh, enjoyed recording and for now from Phil and myself cheerio Sports Social Podcast Network